Thank you for joining us for the Midweek Bible Study with Dr. David Wilson. Now let's join Dr. Wilson for a more in-depth study of the Word of God. I'm going to begin reading in verse 13. Thank you, Howard, for doing that. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, or you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea, in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us. And they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. A.J. Jacobs, a journalist from New York City, subjected himself to real-life experiments and then wrote humorous books about his um, experiences. For example, in one year, he spent, he spent a year reading every volume of the Britannica, Encyclopedia Britannica, and then he wrote a book. Well, in, in 2007, he wrote a book entitled The Year of Living Biblically, One Man's Humble Quest to Follow the Bible as Literally as Possible. There's an obscure rule. He, he started reading the Bible. There's an obscure rule in Leviticus 19 about Jewish men not cutting the corners of their beards. But Jacobs wasn't sure where the corners of his beard was, so he just didn't cut his beard at all. She didn't shave at all. Now, Jacobs is not a Christian. His parents are Jewish, but he claims to be an agnostic and for this project, he bought a Bible and read it for four weeks and wrote down every rule he could find and tried to obey it. And he had a list of over 700 rules. The vast majority of these rules were the kosher rules found in Leviticus. He stopped wearing clothes of mixed fabrics. He played a 10-stringed harp. He blew a shofar at the first of every month. He refused to shake hands with women because they might be ceremonially unclean. A man saw him in Central Park and asked him what he was doing, and when he explained, the man asked Jacobs if there was a rule he had not obeyed, and Jacobs pulled out some pebbles out of his pocket and said he had not had the opportunity to stone someone who had committed adultery. Well, the man admitted that he had committed that sin, so Jacob said, great, but before he could throw the pebbles at the man, the man grabbed the pebbles from his hand and threw them at Jacob's. Jacob said, an eye for an eye, and threw the pebbles back at the man. And of course, Jacob's conducted his experiment to write a funny book, and he did accomplish his goal. He said the reading of the Bible didn't cause him to believe in God, but it did change him from an agnostic to what he called a reverent agnostic which is 
an oxymoron. He reported that he found something very powerful in sacred rituals. For instance, he was a workaholic, but for a year, he had to refrain from any work on the Sabbath. He reported that it remarkably lowered his stress level. Now, his experiment was flawed from the beginning because he didn't understand that the Bible isn't a book of rules. You see, the Bible is a love letter from God to mankind. If you only read it looking for rules, that's what you're going to find. But if you read the Bible looking and searching for God, you're going to find him also. He missed the point of the Bible, and one of the reasons is found in 2 Corinthians, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, which says, the man without the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. But what Jacob's experiment did reveal is that a lot of people think of what, what a lot of people think about the Bible. They think of it as some ancient, archaic book of rules or impossible to keep rules. But for those of us who know God and love God, we know that it's more up to date than tomorrow's newspaper is. Our nation is losing, if it hasn't already lost, its moral compass because of our leaders no longer consider the Bible to be a reliable guide for truth. In 2005, the state Supreme Court in Colorado overturned a death penalty on a convicted murderer because the jurors consulted a Bible while deliberating over the sentence. And the court ruled the Bible constituted an improper outside influence. It's the kind of world we're living in. I agree with the great American statesman, Daniel Webster, who said, if we abide by the principles taught in the Bible, our country will go on prospering. But if we and our posterity neglect its instructions and authority, no man can tell how sudden a catastrophe may overwhelm us and bury all our glory in profound obscurity. That's what's happening. When Paul wrote the Thessalonians, in verses 11 and 12, you'll notice verse 12, he said that he, he, he exhorted him and charged him to walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom. Those, Christ, those people had responded to God's word. And so in this brief passage, you see some reactions what I'm going to call reactions to God's word. Anytime God's word is proclaimed, it demands a response. Did you know that? One of the reasons that we give an invitation on Sundays, because when God's word is proclaimed, it demands some kind of response. Well, you see some responses here. You see some reaction. And the very first thing you notice, he commends them for their recognition of God's word. It's good news. They saw it for what it it is. It's good news. He uses two words in verse 13 to explain what he means. You'll see the words received in verse 13. I'm reading from a New King James Version uh, translation. And it says, as you welcomed it, your translation may say, as you accepted it as the word of God. So I want us to to break that down, unpack that a little bit. Um, 
the first thing they, the, the first recognition of God's word was a realization. They realized it was, it's, an, it's an objective uh, response. It's hearing of the ear. The, he uses the word received. That means it's a wholehearted, formal acceptance that it is God's word. It's not just a book. It is God's word. They objectively received the truth about Jesus. They didn't make any excuses, but freely opened the door of their hearts to allow God's word to impact them. The word received would describe your actions when somebody knocks on your door. You open the door, and most of the time, if you know them, most of the time you welcome them in, you receive them into your home. That's the picture here. They said, this is God's word. We receive that. We know it's God's word. You would open and invite them in. Have you ever thought about why God's word is so special? What The Bible is so unique in that it was written over a period of 1,500 years by 40 different people in three different languages. Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And these were just ordinary people who were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write down what God wants them to write. Peter said in 2 Peter 1.21, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are a lot of great writings that we claim down through posterity in, a, in the world, Virgil and Homer. They never preface their writings by, by, hear the, by, by hear the word of the gods, little g, gods. Shakespeare or Milton never asserted their writings came straight from a god. But in the Bible, you'll read the phrase, the Lord says, or God says, 2,600 times, thus saith the Lord, or the Lord says. And when the Bible speaks, God speaks. It isn't merely the word of men, it's the word of God. It's so unique. Consider, for example, how the Book of Mormon was written. One man, Joseph Smith, claimed as a teenager that an angel named Moroni led him to some golden plates inscribed with Egyptian hieroglyphics. And over the next few months, Joseph Smith dictated the translation of these tablets, which no one else saw, and which he claims he gave back to Moroni. Not many non-Mormons know this, but did you know how Joseph Smith claimed he dictated the Book of Mormon? He didn't look at the tablets. Instead, he used something called a Sears, not is in Roebuck, S-E-E-R-S, Sears Stone, which psychics of that day used to find buried treasure. He put this chocolate-colored Sears Stone in his hat, covered his face with his hat, and the stone showed him what to say. Apparently, that magic rock spoke King James Version English because much of the Book of Mormon is selections from the King James Bible. Or how was the Quran written? Beginning in 610 AD, Muhammad was in a cave 
when an angel Gabriel appeared to him and dictated what he was to write, that began a series of revelations that Muhammad wrote down until his death. For instance, God told him to stop facing Jerusalem when he prayed and to face Mecca. Well, Muslims claim that the Quran can only be read in Arabic, so if you want to read it, you must learn Arabic. If you read it in English, it's not the real one. You have to read it in Arabic. Well, see, as Christians, we don't ascribe to some holy dictation theory. God spoke to all different kinds of people, ordinary people. Moses was the prince of Egypt writing in the wilderness. Daniel was a prime minister writing from a palace in Iraq. Paul was a prisoner writing from behind bars. Amos was a farmer. Peter was a fisherman. Solomon was a king. Luke was a doctor. And Matthew worked for the IRS. And God spoke in different ways to different people. He thundered the message to Moses, to Jeremiah. God's word was like a fire in his bones. To Elijah, God, still, God spoke in a still, small voice. God spoke to Daniel through dreams and visions. And the Bible is written for all people. The full Bible has been translated in over 500 languages, the whole Bible. And portions in the New Testament in over 2,800 languages. And the number keeps changing because almost every week it's translated into a new language. In fact, my, my statistics are probably obsolete. If I picked 40 of you or 40 people in West Texas and I separated you and I told you to write about a controversial subject, do you think everybody would agree? Would those 40 documents have a common theme and a common subject? I doubt it. You can't get two people to write that kind of work. But these 40 men who wrote the Bible lived in different times, in different cultures, and wrote in different languages, and yet the Bible has a common theme, as you're seeing as we read through it and as we study through it. It has a literary, literary symmetry about it that can only be described as miraculous because God put it together. It's his word. 500 years ago, it was a crime to own a Bible that was translated into English. There were a few courageous men who knew that the common man needed a Bible that they could read and understand. William Tyndale vowed, and I quote, every plowboy should know the scriptures, end of quote. And he was forced to leave England and labor in Europe for many difficult years. He translated the whole Bible into English. And in 1525, Tyndale printed the first English New Testament. Tyndale's translation was the first English Bible to draw directly from the Hebrew and Greek texts not some Latin translation of the Hebrew Greek text, the first English Bible to take advantage of the printing press and the first of the new English Bibles of the Reformation. It was taken to be a direct challenge to the domination of the Roman Catholic Church and the English laws to maintain church rulings. With the help of many friends, they smuggled hundreds of thousands of copies into England. Well, it wasn't greeted with gratitude. He was arrested, placed in solitary confinement for 500 days, and finally burned at the stake in Belgium of October the 6th, 1536. Inside the office in here, and it's my copy of it, I have a copy of a Tyndale page. It's dated 1538, which is two years after he was 
burned at the stake. I meant to bring it in here and let you see it. But his last words when he died were, O Lord, open the eyes of the king of England. People died for you to have a copy of this. And the reason was, if you didn't have a copy of it, those who had it could control you. And the church did that. The Catholic church did that through history. Read it for yourself. You don't have to take my word for it. They didn't want you to have a copy of the Bible. If you get people to read the Bible on their own, they start seeing it for themselves, don't they? A young man was preparing a long trip, and he said, I'm just about packed. He told his buddy, he said, but I've still got to put in a guidebook, a lamp, a mirror, a microscope, a telescope, a volume of kind poetry, a few biographies, a package of old letters, a book of songs, a sword, a hammer, and a set of books I've been studying. His, his, his buddy said, you're not going to get all that in that bag. He said, oh, yeah, I am. And he put his Bible in the corner right there because it contains all of that. It is God's word. It's not just a book. It is the book. Now, you'll also see not only did they realize it was God's word, but they received it, the reception. Here's the subjective part, hearing of the heart. For this reason, we thank God without ceasing because you received the word of God. You accepted it. You welcomed it. That word accept means to welcome a visitor into your home. It's subjective. It's the difference between the possible... It's possible to listen to God's word being taught and read and not be changed by it. Because people decide, that's not for me. I'm not going to follow that. It happens every week. Anytime we preach the word of God, there are people. Did you know everybody on Sunday, every last person that's here tonight and on Sunday, they all make decisions. They either decide to follow God or they decide not to. And the focus here is crucial. He's saying, you heard the message from man, but you recognized it, that it came from God. You heard from us, the human side, God's message, the divine side, so you responded not as if it were our opinion, that's what Paul's saying, you responded as if it were God speaking to you. The word of God is powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's amazing to me how... I can be preaching out of a passage of the Bible and it may be on one particular subject and somebody hears it in a whole different subject because God's speaking to their heart in a different way. The word of God has the power to change lives. Let me tell you a true account. In 1949, the Foreign Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention appointed a Texas pastor by the name of Dr. Julius Hickerson to serve as a missionary in Columbia. His specific task was to build a seminary in a town in Columbia to train pastors, Colombian pastors, to share the gospel and to start churches. But before he could get the seminary built, he died in a small plane crash over the remote jungles of the mountains between Colombia and Venezuela. Well, two years later, a delegation of natives came out of that jungle of the interior and came to the Baptist mission station in Barranquilla. These natives announced to the missionaries that they were followers of Jesus. 
And the missionaries were surprised because they hadn't sent any missionaries into that remote area. And they asked how the natives had heard the gospel. And these new believers explained that they had found a book that came from heaven. And it was a leather-bound New Testament written in Spanish with the name Julius Hickerson engraved on the cover. And only one member of the tribe could read Spanish, so he read it in several villages. And everyone in these villages became Christians, and several churches had been started using nothing more than the model in this book from heaven. Julius Hickerson died in a plane crash before he could build the seminary, but his Bible survived, and these Colombian natives read it and gave their lives to Christ. That is the power of the life-changing message of God's word. And then you'll notice the result also in verse 13. It says, by which also effectively works in you who believe. It's a supernatural result. It's living out the truth. They digested the truth. It's assimilated into their life and then they live it out. Why do you study the Bible? You want to know what God wants you to do. Now, we've, we all know about salvation. We know how God saved us and, and Jesus came and died on the cross. But that's just the beginning. When you give your life to Christ and you're born again, you begin to live this out. I use this example. Here's a, a, a simple way to remember how to handle the word of God. You take your, your hand here and, you know, I'm going to let the thumb represent the hearing of the Word of God. Now, you, it's hard to grasp the Word of God with just my thumb. And, and, you know, if all you ever do is just hear it, you're not going to retain much of it. So we'll let the index finger represent reading the Word of God. Now, now you're going to be able to grasp a little bit more of it. However, it's still easy to pull it away. And so we'll let the third finger represent studying, which means that you're going to read a passage of verse and ask yourself what it means and try to formulate the, the meaning of it. And we'll let the fourth finger represent memorizing. David said in Psalm 119, thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against God. And then when you hear and you read and you study and you memorize, you hear, you read, you study, you memorize, then you meditate on it. And that means you ponder it over and over and you dwell on it and you try to apply it to your life. And, and if I only hold my Bible with my fingertips, it still can be snatched away. So I'm going to let the palm of my hand represent applying the Word of God and now you've gotten it. You apply it in your life. You got a good grip on the word of God. When you start to live it, you've got a good grip on it. Amen? Well, the reception or, or receiving God's word. But then that's the good news. But then there's some sad news because you see the resistance to God's work in verse 14. For you, brethren, you, you became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus, but you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen. <clears throat> that word countrymen, that's in the New King James translation, 
It's absolutely unique. It's not found anywhere else in the New Testament. And it means the people closest to you. The sad news is, if you decide to believe the Bible as the Word of God, there may be some people very close to you who are going to reject that. Maybe a family member, might be a coworker, a schoolmate, a close friend. You start living out, you're not doing it in a way to make yourself look better than them and you're not lording it over them or looking down on them. You just start applying the word of God to your life and some people are gonna go, what's gotten into you? I can tell you, the Lord Jesus has gotten into me. And the word of God has gotten into me. But, but, but Paul said, some of you are suffering the same thing from those that are closest to you, your own countrymen. That's the sad news. The good news is they had received the word of God. The sad news is that some of the people resisted the work that they were doing and living for the Lord. But Paul also reminds one other thing. He reminds them of God's wrath, the bad news. So you've got good news, sad news, and bad news here. Verse 15 says, They killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us, and they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, and then notice what's, what's in store for them. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. He wrote this about some Jewish people who were opposing the gospel. And a few days, a few days before Jesus died on the cross, he wept over Jerusalem. You, you, you remember that? Or you, you probably recall that. And he predicted that it was going to be destroyed. And in 70 AD, the Romans attacked Jerusalem and destroyed the city and leveled the temple. When Paul wrote this letter, it was just a few years before 70 AD, and there was already conflict going on in Jerusalem between the Romans and the Jewish people. And Paul saw this as God's punishment on the city for rejecting Jesus and opposing the gospel. And verse 16 tells us two things about God's judgment on people. He said, first, they fill up the measure of their sins. That means to fill to the brim. I believe there's a limit and a line and a point of no return. For people. I, I don't know when that is, and I don't think that's what God intends, but people get to a place where they're just, they're not ever going to come to God. Now, no one knows when or where that point is, but the point is, is that it happens to nations and families and individuals. And the, and the sad thing is that of course, you, I'm t you wouldn't be here if you didn't love Jesus. I mean, you come on Wednesday nights, you love Jesus. And some of you couldn't come. I'm not talking about those watching online. Don't, don't, don't write me any letters. 
But I'm just saying most of you are here tonight because you want to study the word and that's a, and the reason is you know the Lord and you're watching online because of that. But the, but the fact is that, you know, people keep rejecting and keep rejecting and keep rejecting and keep rejecting and they just don't come. Even during the tribulation, after the rapture, the tribulation, God is going to reveal himself in so many ways, trying to get people to come to him, giving them another opportunity to come to him before the final judgment happens and people still won't come. And then it says the wrath has come upon them. Now, the word is both present and future, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. God's wrath is ultimately going to come, and you and I don't have to worry because we're delivered from the wrath that's going to come. We've been saved. We'll be delivered from God's wrath. You're not going to face the judgment and wrath of God. Jesus did that for you on the cross, and you've accepted that, and it's been conferred to you through your faith in Jesus Christ. The wrath's been paid for. It's been taken care of. But there's a day coming. There is a hell coming. There is a hell. And most people don't like to hear about hell. That's God's ultimate, final punishment for sin. It's a place of darkness. It's a place of agony. It's a place, the lake of fire. And although our God is patient, his patience has limits. Most people don't like to hear about hell. The first great awakening in 1730, here when there were just 13 British colonies, we weren't even a nation yet. And one of the pastors God used for that first great awakening was Jonathan Edwards. Now, he preached a famous sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Jonathan Edwards was not some backwoods bumpkin. He was an educated theologian. He graduated, get this, from Yale, and he married the daughter of the first president of Yale, Yale, Harvard, and Princeton. The Ivy League schools were all founded to train preachers of the gospel. Jonathan Edwards was the president of Princeton when he died at the age of 55. But I doubt the name of God is used very much in those three schools anymore. But maybe we need to hear some sermons like that if we're going to see a spiritual awakening. Could I read just a little excerpt from that sermon to you? I want you to hear this. Now, well, I'm going to read it and then tell you a little bit. Here's what he said. The bow of God's wrath is bent. And the arrow made ready on the string, and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow. And it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Thus all you have Thus, all you, have, all you that never passed under a great change of heart by the mighty power of the Spirit of God upon your souls, all you that were never born again are in the hands of an angry God. It is nothing but God's hand of mercy that holds you from falling into the fiery, 
into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night. And there's no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand has held you up. There's no other reason to be given why you have not gone to hell since you have sat here in the house of God. Yea, yea, there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you do not this very moment drop down into hell. Now, Jonathan Edwards was not a hellfire and brimstone preacher. In fact, he wasn't, handling the, he wasn't pounding the pulpit. He wasn't yelling. He read his message in a high-pitched voice with no emotion. And yet there are reports of people in the congregation weeping and holding on to the pews and the posts of the church building to keep from falling into hell. He proclaimed God's punishment for sin, but he also offered God's invitation for salvation. And here's how he concluded his message. And now you have an extraordinary opportunity a day wherein Christ has thrown the door of mercy wide open and stands in calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners, a day wherein many are flocking to him and pressing into the kingdom of God. Many are daily coming that were very lately in the same miserable condition that you are in. They are now in a happy state with their hearts filled with love to him who has loved them and washed them from their sins in his own blood." high-pitched, monotone reading a sermon started a spiritual awakening. That's the power of the Word of God. And God's wrath is a terrible reality that comes upon every individual institution and nation that turns away from Him. Only when they see that they're under the wrath of God will people begin to respond to Jesus. To, to, para, to paraphrase Billy Graham, you have to get people lost before you can get them saved. And when a man sees that he is lost and doomed and has no hope, then he begins to notice and call on the name of the Lord. One of the reasons... God has his hand and has had his hand on this place is because we still hold a high view of Scripture. We lift up Jesus and we talk about sin because it's in the Bible. And when we go through, verse, when we go through books of the Bible, you have to cover it all. But I'll tell you, there are a lot of people that will say, well, you know what? I can take it as long as you're talking about the good stuff, God's grace and making me feel better. But when you start talking about sin, I'm out of here. Well, there's a lot of people like that. I used to take it personally. I don't anymore. I learned it's not me they're rejecting. <laughs> it's the Lord Jesus. And so... We need to be reminded of God's wrath from the standpoint that we have friends and relatives and acquaintances that don't know Jesus. And they can be nice people. I know a lot of nice religious people, but they don't know Jesus. 
They don't acknowledge Jesus. And so there are a lot of ways that people react to God's word. You folks have responded. You believe it's God's word. You, have, you believe the message of the Bible. You believe the, the God of the Bible and the Jesus of the Bible and the Holy Spirit of the Bible. And you have received it and accepted it. You've welcomed it into your life. But then there are those that will reject it. And then there are those who don't realize they're under the wrath eventually to the uttermost of God. So I don't know if this was a a good or a bad one. It was a little of all of it, wasn't it? (laughs) Some good news, some sad news, and some real bad news all in that passage. Thank you for being here tonight. Um, we're, uh, I hope you're reading through the book of uh, Nehemiah. And, um, and then we're going to look at Esther this Sunday. And you only have 10 chapters to read. And then we're going to take a couple of weeks and talk about Christmas and New Year's. And then we'll get back to it in January. We'll pick up in Job. So it's going to give you most of the month of December to get caught up on your reading if, you have, if you're falling behind. But hey, God's word's going to last forever, so you've got plenty of time to get it. You may not last forever, but the word of God will stand forever. Let me lead us in prayer and thank you again for, for uh, weathering the wind and the cold to come tonight. Lord, we thank you for your word and thank you that you've made it crystal clear about your salvation and grace and how much you love us. We thank you for the love letter that's written that it's written for the whole world. And thank you that these folks have responded in a positive way. And we pray for anyone tonight that may not have received Jesus and responded to the invitation that you have given us through him. We pray for our service this Sunday. We ask God that you would be with the folks who are recovering from COVID-19, that you'd please, please heal them. Lord, we've lost, we've lost more than we wanted to lose. We didn't want to lose anybody, but would you please slow our losses down? Help us, God. We ask for your direction. We pray that the truth will come out if there's any... If there's anything hidden in the election, please let it come out. If Whatever, Lord, we're going to keep our eyes on you and, and we're going to focus on you. So we come Sunday, we're going to be looking for an opportunity to just be drawn closer. Thank you, Lord, for South Crest. Thank you for a wonderful group of people. And I ask you to protect them this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you again for being here. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to watch more live streams or additional Bible studies, please go to southcrestlive.tv. We hope to see you again next week.